This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello on this fine day. Thank you for listening in. I'm Joel Hilliker. All eyes are on Vladimir Putin right now. His war in Ukraine is not going well. Last Friday, he formally annexed four major sections of Ukraine, unilaterally declaring them part of Russia. Well, the Ukrainians aren't exactly lying down and taking it. They've put up significant resistance. And a conscription program in Russia inspired substantial resistance among his own people. So Putin's path to victory looks increasingly like it will require more extreme measures, even including nuclear weapons. We shall see. In our first segment, we'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about how the path Putin is treading is very like the one traveled by his Soviet predecessor, Joseph Stalin. He'll show how in many ways Russia today is reliving its Soviet history. In our second segment, a new government-funded study in the United Kingdom looked into problems facing British families. Part one of the report was published last month, and it has uncovered some shocking truths about the state of the family in Britain today. We'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. Then a word from the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. We have a report from Chris Eames, who is on staff in Jerusalem at the Institute, which officially launched last month. He has a report giving us some insight into the kinds of puzzles and questions that archaeologists wrestle over. He specifically looks at the chronology of the Exodus and the Judges' periods and the evidence suggesting different timelines. It's quite an interesting look at how they use evidence and deduction to get to the truth about this antiquated history. And for our last word, we'll talk about the biblical holy day of atonement, which is today, and why it should be important to all of us. Let's start by looking at the historical echoes we are seeing in the present-day leader of Russia in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. Back in 1939, when Soviet leader Joseph Stalin set his sights on Poland, he could have followed the example of his Nazi allies and simply taken his half of the nation by unabashed force. But Stalin instead decided to go to a great deal of trouble so that he could hang a grotesque mask of legitimacy on his annexation. So after he had sent at least half a million of his troops into Poland and had massacred tens of thousands of Poland's soldiers and civilians, Stalin then staged a sham referendum. In this vote, the people of Eastern Poland, who had just been invaded and savaged by the Soviet Union, were asked to vote on whether or not they wanted to join the Soviet Union. And then, after Stalin learned that more than 90% of them were in favor of joining, he graciously accepted the quote-unquote will of the people. And then Stalin's conquest of Eastern Poland was complete. The following year, when Stalin began absorbing the Baltic states, he orchestrated more performances of the same basic theatrics, sham referendums. And again, after the gunpoint voting, he claimed that more than 9 in 10 voters in the conquered nations wanted to join his wicked empire. That's some well-documented history about some early chapters of World War II. And in light of this history, it should have come as no surprise over the last week when Stalin's successor in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, staged gunpoint referendums in parts of eastern Ukraine that his forces are occupying. These referendums happened in some of the same regions where Russian invaders have subjected Ukrainians to unspeakable barbarity. It's the regions of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kyrgyzstan, and Zaporizhia. The footage of the way the referendums were carried out is stunning because Russian troops oversaw the voting and they were armed with Kalashnikovs going door to door, 
making sure first that the people voted and second that they voted yes we want to be part of the russian federation the videos of this are ludicrous because it's just so outlandish to make people vote literally at gunpoint but putin apparently really wanted to be able to hang a mask of legitimacy on his annexation of these lands and then after a few days of counting on september 30th Putin announced that despite the atrocities that these Ukrainians have suffered at the hands of Russians, more than 90% of them voted to join Russia. So they voted in the way that the armed soldiers wanted them to vote. So these four regions are now part of Russia, at least according to Putin's claims. The rest of the world doesn't recognize this. Even Russia's one official ally, Belarus, has not recognized the results of the sham referendums. But Putin doesn't care. He says it's a done deal. And these four regions make up about 42,000 square miles of land. So that's larger than the nation of Portugal. It's a huge piece of real estate. It's actually the largest annexation of land in Europe since World War II. And since these regions are now officially Russian oblasts, at least in Putin's eyes, he can pull out all the stops to defend them. The Kremlin stated it clearly on October 5th, saying that any attack on Donetsk or any of these other regions will be viewed as an attack on Russia itself. So there are all kinds of momentous implications for this on the battlefield, possibly even including weapons of mass destruction. But the historic parallels here are also deeply significant, because... By going to the immense trouble of forcing hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to physically participate in a predetermined, utterly shambolic vote, just to be able to tell an elaborate lie that no one believes, Putin is carrying on a long-standing Russian tradition. He is walking in Stalin's footsteps. In an interview with thetrumpet.com conducted on September 30th, Kiev-based analyst Taras Revenet said, Putin's announcement about the sham referendums will, quote, go down in history as Putin's grandest Stalin wannabe moment. And this is far from the only area where Putin is treading Stalin's path. Stalin was not born Stalin, by the way. He was born as Joseph Zugashvili back in 1878. But in his youth, he gave himself the more terror-inspiring name, which means Man of Steel. In his early years, Stalin obsessed over the works of Karl Marx, and he joined the revolutionary Bolshevik party to help topple Russia's czar. His first contributions to the party were fundraising efforts carried out by theft, including some robberies that ended with murder. And Stalin also raised funds by kidnapping children of wealthy families and holding them for ransom. In November of 1917, the Bolsheviks violently took over Russia with Vladimir Lenin as their head and with Stalin as one of Lenin's top enforcers. The Bolsheviks promised the Russians a communal utopia, and they set their hands to try to bring it about. They shuttered all media that was critical of their bloody revolution. They created a cold-blooded internal security service, which was the forerunner to the KGB. And they started executing all quote-unquote enemies of the state, which included former clergy members, former nobles, and anyone who had been wealthy before the revolution. After Lenin's death in 1924, Stalin outmaneuvered all of his Bolshevik rivals, and became the new leader of the party and the country. And he then collectivized agriculture, significantly increased the powers of the secret police, and created a culture built on Soviet citizens spying on each other. Stalin introduced the Great Purge, which was a drive to cleanse Soviet society of anyone viewed as disloyal to his regime either by summary execution or by being slowly worked to death in a gulag camp. Some 18 million people entered Stalin's gulags, and millions never left. Altogether, Stalin slaughtered as many as 20 million people. 
Putin was born into Stalin's Soviet nightmare in 1952, just five months before Stalin died. And then in 1975, at age 22, Putin joined the KGB, where he worked for 15 years as a government enforcer. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in the January 2004 issue that it was during these years that Putin began to be sculpted into a neo-Stalinist figure. He wrote, Mr. Putin was shaped and molded by the infamous KGB, Russia's ruthless, murderous secret service arm of the government made famous by Joseph Stalin. End quote. At the time that Mr. Flurry wrote those words in 2004, Putin had been head of Russia for only four years, and few saw him as a dangerous dictator in the making or as a threat to the global order. But Mr. Flurry recognized the links between Stalin, the KGB, and Putin, and he warned, quote, the world should be alarmed. In 2008, Mr. Flurry again likened Putin to Stalin, stating that he was sure that the Russian president had entered into some sort of secret deal with German authorities, similar to the one Stalin had enacted with Adolf Hitler back in 1939 that mapped out the way the two would split up Poland and that helped bring about World War II. Then in his 2017 booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry's comparisons were even more incisive. He wrote, Putin has a long pattern of diabolical evil on the level of Joseph Stalin. An abundance of fruits prove that. No leader in Russia has equaled Putin's diabolical evil since Joseph Stalin. End quote. In the time since that booklet was written, and especially since this year's full-scale war on Ukraine started, those fruits have become even more abundant. Putin was molded by the ugly and merciless system that Stalin established, and he is increasingly treading in Stalin's path. Putin buys into the Stalinist view that totalitarianism, built on ruthless coercion, is the most effective and perhaps the only way to govern the Russian people. On many occasions, Stalin said, Russians need a czar. That's strange coming from a man who played a key role in ousting Russia's final czar and executing him and his family. But Stalin used this argument to justify making his own rule as absolute as any monarch's. And Putin has recently begun using similar logic in recent months. He has been comparing himself to Peter the Great, the 18th century czar who was equal parts empire builder and ruthless killer. Putin's repression of his own people increasingly mirrors that of Stalin. With ceaseless propaganda and lies, ubiquitous displays of fanatical patriotism, violent quashing of all protests, total control of media, and the cultivation of a cult of terror. Putin doesn't yet have an archipelago of gulags in place, full of political prisoners, but his notoriously abusive and inhumane penal colony system is resembling the gulags more with each year. And then also like Stalin, Putin is obsessed with the idea of annihilating Ukraine's statehood and sovereignty. The forces of both of these men committed unspeakable atrocities in pursuit of that annihilation. The history of Stalin's evil reign, which Putin is increasingly imitating, points to a bleak future for Russia, Ukraine, and the world. And when that history is placed alongside Bible prophecy, the indication becomes a certainty. The Bible cautions that a gargantuan power will arise from the East in the modern era. Revelation 16.12 calls this power the kings of the East. And Revelation 9.16 says it'll have an army of 200 million men. The Bible provides many details about this megaforce. Daniel 11.44 and 12.1 show that it'll be among the primary belligerents in a nuclear World War III. Ezekiel 38 tells which specific countries will contribute soldiers to this Asian axis, 
and shows that it'll be led by one nation and one man. Verse 2 states, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Bible scholars generally agree that Gog here refers to Russia and that the land of Magog includes the vast area where modern-day China is located. Meshach is related to the modern Russian spelling of Moscow, and Tubal refers to the Russian city of Tobolsk. And then still another name for all of Russia is somewhat hidden in this passage. There's disagreement over how the Hebrew word Rosh in this verse should be rendered in English. And the King James Version, quoted a moment ago, renders it as the adjective chief, as in chief prince. But the accurate translation would be as a proper noun, Rosh. This is an ancient name indicating the people who became known as Rus or Russia. So the identity of this prince of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsk, begins to take a discernible shape. The listing of all three names shows that this is one man ruling over all the various peoples across Russia. And then the mention of Magog shows that this man's leadership actually extends beyond the borders of Russia and into China. And verses 5 and 6 mention ancient names for the peoples of such nations as India and Japan showing that these countries will also lend their military power to this Russia-led bloc. Mr. Flurry wrote in the Trumpet's September 2014 issue that when these Bible passages are studied alongside current events in Russia, the identity of this Prince of Russia becomes clear. He wrote, I strongly believe Vladimir Putin is going to lead the 200 million man army. Just look at the power he already has. Can you think of any other Russian politician who could become so powerful and have the will to lead Russia into the crisis of crises? I see nobody else on the horizon who can do that. By the time he wrote The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Fleury was even more convinced that Putin would personally fulfill this role. He wrote, His track record, his nationality, and his ideology shows that he is fulfilling a linchpin Bible prophecy. The time frame of his rule also shows that nobody else could be fulfilling the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy. It's apparent that a grim and bleak future is coming for Russia, for Ukraine, and for the world. But Mr. Flurry emphasized that the fact that this increasingly Stalin-esque Prince of Russia is now in power shows that the best news in mankind's history is also now very near. He writes, Vladimir Putin is a sign, literally a sign that Jesus Christ is about to return. This is one of the most inspiring messages in the Bible. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man ruling man to God ruling man. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. A new report on the state of families in Britain gives a shocking picture, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. When the year 1914 started, the British Empire was at its zenith. Spanning from the farthest aloft islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to the subcontinent of India, from the Suez Canal to the Straits of Gibraltar, from the Canadian Arctic down to Cape Horn, King George V reigned. The Royal Navy was master of the waves, and London was the financial hub of the world. Yet World War I completely transformed Britain and the fortunes of the empire. Not only did the war invoke a huge cost financially and culturally, it transformed the family unit. 886,000 British military personnel died during the Great War. That accounted for 6% of all men in the nation. Some towns lost between 5 and 9% of their entire population. In the 1921 census, there were 109 women for every 100 men. 
This represented a catastrophic loss of fathers in the country. Those families raised a generation of men who would fight and die in the next world war, making two consecutive generations where fathers with a connection to traditional virtues were suddenly removed from society. The world wars also revolutionized families by bringing women into the workforce. Working mothers radically changed the foundational years of children. This trend has only increased over the decades since. Occurring simultaneously with these catastrophic changes to the family unit has been the collapse of the British Empire. Following victory in World War II, the empire dissolved in a short number of years. This was witnessed by the late Herbert W. Armstrong, who wrote in the United States and Britain in Prophecy, quote, Yet we are beholding before our very eyes the diminishing and evaporating of this national greatness, wealth, and power. In the case of Great Britain, it is disintegrating even more rapidly than it developed. Britain has been almost overnight stripped of her colonies and her possessions, source of her wealth, and reduced to a second-rate or third-rate power. Why? End quote. Indeed, why? Why did the once mighty British Empire collapse into a third-rate power? Why is the Britain of today facing so many crises? The story of the decline and fall of Britain is really the story of the decline and collapse of the family. There are other causes, but the main root cause is the shocking, painful and gradual decline of the family unit in Britain. The trumpet has been warning for years about the crisis in British families. A new independent study commissioned by the government of the United Kingdom to research the state of families in Britain has some shocking findings. The Children's Commission Family Review Part 1 by Dame Rachel D'Souza and her team writes, quote, Data from the Millennium Cohort Study shows that of children born in 2000 to 2001, 44% do not live with both biological parents throughout their entire childhood, end quote. Nearly half of all British school children do not live in a traditional family. 63% of the 8.2 million families in the UK are married couples, 23% have a lone parent, and 14% are cohabitating, switching between parents in a divorce. 80,850 British school children are cared for by the state in foster homes. The lone parenting rate in Britain is much higher than other European countries which averages 13%. The report continues, quote, Lone parents are less likely to be employed with around 50% of lone mothers of a child aged 0 to 4 employed, rising to 75% when children are aged 5 to 16, end quote. Lone parents that must work greatly affects the amount of time that children get to spend with their parents. In 2014 to 2015, Women spent on average of 88 minutes per day with their children, with men at an even lower rate of 47 minutes per day. During the pandemic, the time kids had with fathers increased to 90 minutes a day. In 2022, the amount of time spent with children is only slightly more than it was in 2014 to 2015. It is shocking how little time parents spend with their children, whether they are single parents or married. This is telling of how most families are caught in the two-income trap where unless both parents work, life can be unaffordable. Children become an afterthought to a career. With the little time they do spend together, how is it being spent? The report writes, quote, Families are spending more time in the same location doing things alone, which they call alone-together time. Time use data shows that the average amount of time families spent in the same location, but doing things alone, increased from 95 minutes a day in 2000 to 136 minutes a day in 2015. Of total family time spent per day, 6.4 hours in 2015, 2.4 hours are spent on mobile devices, end quote. Even when families are spending time together, they're on their own separate screen and not interacting with each other. The report continues, one of the most striking changes in family life over the past two decades has been an increase in the employment rate for mothers, 
which has steadily increased almost 10 percentage points over the past two decades, from 67% in 2002 to 76% in 2021. Over the same period, there has been a slight increase in the employment rate for fathers, from 90% to 92%, end quote. Only a quarter of children in Britain experience having a mom at home with them. It has become a rarity for children to spend more time with their parents than at daycare and childcare. It is also becoming more common for children to live in blended families, where divorced families fuse together. The statistics show this can happen multiple times in the course of a single childhood. The report writes, Data from Understanding Society shows that while at any one time, around 25% of families are lone parent families, over a six-year period, around 33% of families have a lone parent family. In other words, parental separation is quite common, but parents can also get back together or form new relationships, end quote. 12% of kids deal with parental conflict on a frequent basis. Almost 500,000 children in Britain were living with a parent who is abusing drugs or alcohol. Over 200,000 children need protection from their parents due to child abuse or neglect, while almost 170,000 kids are affected by domestic abuse, which is violence between adults. Most of these children overlap into these different categories. As divorce and separation increase, so will more children who face these tragic circumstances. What do all these statistics mean? A shocking amount of British kids spend very little time with their parents, who are often both working or live most of their childhood with a working mother. Divorce and broken homes are quite common. Most kids spend the vast majority of their childhood at daycares and not with their parents. A vast majority of mothers are now working. All of these trends have increased over the past 10 years. The report points out that children with two parents are more likely to succeed in school and have better paying jobs than those without. But what these statistics can't capture are the scars that divorce and separation away from parents inflict on children. In the years when the foundation of a child's personality, thinking, and emotional constitution are being formed, they often don't have a father, are going back and forth between two different houses, or are being watched over by strangers. It begins a lifetime of healing and obstacles that many overcome, but divorce and separation not only hurt the children, it threatens the very foundation of the realm. In The Missing Dimension in Sex, Herbert W. Armstrong documents how World War I changed society's attitude towards sex and family. After a millennia of sexual repression, the old morality, a moral revolution of, quote, sexual freedoms took place. This became known as the new morality and especially took hold starting in the 1960s. This moral revolution is a direct mirror image of the British Empire's decline. Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, The new morality became accepted by society. Divorces escalated. Family and home life became non-existent. Yet a solid family structure is the very foundation of a stable and enduring society. There has floated abroad the delusion that whatever is new and different is more progressive and modern, and therefore better. Far more often, it is retrogression. End quote. The family unit, as defined in the Bible, is the foundation of any society and nation. A country is only as strong as the character of its people. This moral revolution eroded character and eroded the institution that best instructs children, the leaders of tomorrow, in character, which is the family unit. Mr. Armstrong even witnessed women joining the workforce. As he writes, quote, Before World War I, it was a rare married woman who worked away from home. I remember during World War I, my own surprise at seeing women employed for the first time as elevator operators in the Marshall Field Store in Chicago. Such jobs never had been for women, end quote. Now 75% of British mothers work, either out of necessity or by choice. The Missing Dimension in Sex was written in the 1960s and updated in 1981. 
After seeing the destruction of the family unit in Britain and the United States, Mr. Armstrong gave this warning, quote, Since it is a basic truism that a solid family structure is the foundational bulwark of any stable and permanent society, this fact means only one thing. Civilization as we know it is on the way down and out, unless that great, unseen strong hand from someplace soon intervenes and saves today's sick society. Family life has undergone a radical revolution. Parents have their lives, associates, and friends apart from the children. Parents never think of teaching children, being with children, maintaining a family relationship. Parental responsibility is totally neglected. In due time, parents are going to be brought to account for this neglect of basic responsibility. End quote. The many forces working to destroy the family in Britain are contributing to the nation's fatal decline. Of all the crises facing the country, this is the most fatal. Only the Bible can explain why and how all these events are happening. The United States and Britain in Prophecy explains how the British Empire came to be and why it is no more. The Missing Dimension in Sex explains the Bible truth on family. This book outlines the solutions. The Missing Dimension in Knowledge that is lacking in modern families. It also documents the family decline inside our modern nations. You can learn the vital missing dimension and build a happy family that lives an abundant life. To learn more about why Britain is declining and why family is so important to you and your country, please read these two life-changing books, The United States in Britain in Prophecy and The Missing Dimension in Sex. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. With conflicting accounts of ancient history, how can we sort what is accurate from what is exaggerated or made up? The field of archaeology does its best to deduce truth from fallacy. Here's an example regarding the period in ancient Israel from the Exodus to the time of the Judges, given in this report from Christopher Eames. As a writer for the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, one of my favorite periods to tackle is the pre-monarchical era, before the kings of Israel and Judah, and that is the Judges period, the conquest, Israel and Egypt. It is more of a challenge, and that's not to say that evidence for these periods, as described in the Bible, doesn't exist, and it's quite the opposite, actually. But due to the naturally older age of material over this lesser understood uh, period or series of periods, and particularly due to the less centralized nature of Israel during the bloody judges period as compared to the later uh, kingdom period, it can be more challenging to reconstruct and properly interpret this history in the archaeological record. And as such, there are two primary big divides in biblical archaeology in understanding this period. So in this segment, we'll look at the importance of establishing a proper reconstruction of the Exodus and Judges periods in the Bible and archaeology. You'll know that this has been a bit of a topic lately on our Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology website, if you've been following us. We've had quite a few articles coming out lately and scheduled to come out, particularly on establishing chronology and events back across the Judges period to the Exodus and Conquest period that began them. And further, we've also got an article series on the Judges period itself, going through each judge account one at a time and examining, examining the supporting archaeological evidence for that. Now, if you're like most people, probably your first thought about the identity of the Exodus pharaoh is that he was Ramses II. Indeed, this came to the fore in some recent archaeological reporting in Israel following a new tomb discovery that was made. 
It dated to the Ramesside period, and as such, one of the high-profile journalists out there in Israel wrote about it being related to this so-called Exodus Pharaoh. Now, this identification of Pharaoh Ramses II as Pharaoh of the Exodus is one of the two major positions in this great divide, shall we say, about the dating of the Exodus, and thus the significance of the judges' period that followed it. In a way, the primary reason for such a debate is very understandable. The Bible doesn't actually give the name of the pharaoh, any of the early pharaohs, in fact, until sometime later during the monarchical period, during the time of Rehoboam, in fact. And this might cause a knee-jerk reaction in some, that this might have constituted ignorance on the part of the biblical writer. But this is far from the case. Thanks to the work of Egyptologists, we now actually know that this was a common practice during the Egyptian New Kingdom period to only refer to the pharaoh by his more generic title. And as a prince of Egypt, it would only make sense for Moses to reflect this practice in the writing of the Torah or first five books of the Bible to which he is credited. And actually, numerous linguistic and other evidences show clearly that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or Pentateuch, certainly must have been written, at least in large part, during this, what is generally called, New Kingdom period. This Egyptian period extends from about the 16th century BC through the 11th century BC, about a 500-year period. And so it is within this period that we have our big divide. The uh, preference for Ramses II as Pharaoh of the Exodus comes primarily from Exodus 1 verse 11. Now, this verse describes the Israelites working on constructions in Pitom and Ramses. This is seen by proponents then as reflective of the Ramesside period. Pharaohs named Ramses started reigning in the 13th century BC up until the 11th, so anywhere between 50 and 250 years before the reign of Israel's first king, depending upon which Ramses is selected. Uh, there's, I think, nine different Ramses during this period, Ramseses. And so, again, this leaves roughly 50 to 250 years within which to fit the judges' period. So of these uh, different Ramseses, the mid-13th century Ramses II is typically identified as the Exodus Pharaoh. He is seen as one of Egypt's greatest pharaohs of all time. And further, during the early reign of his son and successor, Menapta, a victory inscription, or stela, was discovered mentioning the presence of Israel as an already established nation in the land of Canaan. Thus, the exodus and conquest had to have happened sometime prior to Menapta's reign, thus the reign of Ramses II, his father. Now, added to that, there are also certain city destructions that have been found within the land of Canaan, dating to sometime during the 13th century BC, and thus suggestive, perhaps, of Joshua's conquest. It's an attractive theory. If it wasn't, it wouldn't have its proponents. But turn to 1 Kings 6 verse 1, and you'll read that the building of Solomon's temple began in the fourth year of his reign, 480 years after the exodus out of Egypt. Now, the period of rule for David and Solomon is widely cross-corroborated in biblical chronology and in archaeology as dating to the 10th century BC. And this date of the building of Solomon's temple is most often held to be, from, again, from this archaeological and textual evidence, centered at 967 BC. And we've got an article about this on our website as well. So this is not what is debated here, this 10th century rule of, of David and Solomon. So if we add 480 years to that, to that date, a generally agreed upon date of 967 BC for the temple, 
If we add the 480 years to that, we get an Exodus date of around 1447 or 1446 BC. Now that's nowhere near the 13th century reign of Ramses II, or Ramses I for that matter. That's a full two centuries earlier, again around 1447, 1446 BC, and that would thus almost double the time period of the judges that could fit within it. And as such, some proponents of a Ramsite uh, pharaoh have tried to argue that this 480-year period is simply symbolic because the figure is a multiple of two significant biblical numbers, 12 and 40. 12 times 40 equals 480. And both of these, again, significant biblical numbers. Thus, uh, these late-date proponents argue that the 480 years represents a symbolic, non-literal number, that perhaps 40 represented a rough generational figure, and thus 12 of these 40s were completed, or 12 of these rough generational figures were completed from the time of the Exodus to the temple. But there are other lines of evidence to check this by. Judges 11 verse 26 contains a message from one of the later judges, Jephthah, who would have been on the scene chronologically about 100 years before David's rule, perhaps around 1100 BC. Now, in this verse, Judges 11 verse 26, Jephthah describes Israel as having already been in the land to that point 300 years 300 years from the time of the conquest. Remember, 40 years after the Exodus took place. So if we have the Exodus taking place in the mid-15th century BC, that will have the conquest period beginning at the end of the 15th century, going on into the 14th century. So about 300 years before 1100 BC, the time when Jephthah was on the scene. So this likewise fits with a conquest period 300 years earlier, around 1400 BC. Again, 40, 40 years after Israel left Egypt. There are other lines of evidence. Adding up all of the internal numbers in the book of Judges gives us a total number somewhere in the range of 500 to 600 years, to put it simply, uh, of oppressions and of periods of peace. So, of course, not all the judgeships would have been immediately consecutive, one after the other. There would have been some degree of overlap and different events going on in different geographical regions of Israel, as is clear from the account in the book of Judges. But still, this very large number, this large period, only fits with the above data, uh, arguing for an early exodus date sometime during, again, the 15th century BC, and a full two centuries before the Ramesside period. After all, if we are to accept a 13th century exodus, then we have to try and figure out how to cram and overlap these incredibly large judges' chronologies into a barely 100 to 200 year period before the Israelite monarchy even begins. And the internal biblical evidence for an early 15th century exodus keeps piling up. You've got 1 Chronicles 6, which lists a lineage of 19 generations from the time of the exodus to the time of David. So trying to squeeze all of these into a 13th century exodus would mean essentially that each generation for nearly 20 consecutive generations was essentially conceived by preteen or early teenage children. But the 19 generations do fit perfectly across a span of the nearly five centuries, from the 15th century Exodus through that long judges period to the 10th century rule of David. Each new generation, therefore, conceived at about 25 years old, as you would expect. And this list just keeps going. You can read more about it in our Armstrong Institute article titled, When Did the Israelites Enter the Promised Land? Essentially, the overwhelming weight of internal biblical data forces late-date Exodus, Ramzide proponents, 
to dismiss such various biblical data as either symbolic or entirely unknowable to the biblical author. And one proponent recently accused Jephthah with his 300-year comment that he makes of being a quote-unquote blubbering idiot. But you can see where the great divide lies. And as such, in many ways, it's presented as a Bible-literal early Exodus date around the 15th century BC, followed by a long judges period, or, on the other hand, a more so-called archaeology-literal late-date Exodus around the 13th century BC, supported by a few scriptures here and there, primarily Exodus 1 verse 11, which we'll touch on here in a moment, but followed by little to nothing of the judges' period. But even that is deceiving, though, to call the the late-date Exodus period the more archaeology-aligned period, because arguably the archaeological evidence fits better with an Israel conquest uh, beginning at the end of the 15th century BC on into the 14th century, rather than that late 13th century conquest. Now, there appear to be many different theories out there about how Israel conquered the Promised Land. Most appear to be false. Did you know that the conquest was not a city-by-city destruction? Certain select cities destroyed in the 13th century actually fit better with the bloody judges period. Instead, the Bible describes the conquest of Canaan as primarily being made up of staged land battles. And this is what we clearly have attested for the early period. On into the 14th century, a sweeping of the land of Canaan by this enigmatic people known as the Habiru, a name that is closely similar to that of Hebrew, and which the Israelites were more often called at this point in time than the word Israel. Israelites. Now, this conquest is known from the Amarna letters. They are a trove of 14th century documents, correspondence to the Egyptian pharaoh at the time, from these native leaders of Canaan who were begging the pharaoh for help in driving out the Hibiro, lest all the land be lost, as they repeatedly claimed, pleaded to the pharaoh. Now, as for the cities, the Bible actually specifies only three of them as being reduced to ashes by the Israelites. And the Bible takes pains to say that the other cities were spared. After all, the book of Deuteronomy says that God had reserved such Canaanite establishments for the Israelites to move into and occupy, houses that thou didst not build, etc. So these three cities were Chazor, Ai, and Jericho. Now, Chazor has a destruction layer that does date to the 13th century, but it does also have evidence of a destruction at the end of the 15th century as well. So just looking at that, um, it, it could go either way. Now, the 13th century destruction, you could argue, appears to match up more closely to a certain event during the judges period of Deborah and Barak. So when it comes to the site of Ai, the biblical Ai, that site is still debated. So just with these two cities, Ai and Chazor, we don't get too far in our conclusions uh, conclusively. But Jericho is another matter entirely. Incredible evidence of the walls that came tumbling down has been found at Jericho and only dating to an early Exodus period. During the later time frame, there is no such destruction whatsoever, let alone an inhabitation. Jericho, after all, largely continued to be an abandoned, cursed city. So Jericho, then, stands as conclusive evidence for an early exodus and conquest, followed by this long judges period. And the parallel evidence for this early time frame, continuing into the judges' period, continues on. Uh, You can read more about that in our article on the judges' period oppression of the king of Aram Naharaim. But the abundance of evidence really is clear that the Ramazide pharaohs could not have been those of the Exodus, 
and that the evidence for a late date exodus and short judges period is overwhelmed by that of an early exodus and long judges period. So this just leaves us with one question. What about the reference to the construction of a geographic place called Ramses by the Israelite slaves in Exodus 1 verse 11? Actually, this is rather easily answered by the early Exodus proponents. So if you look at Genesis 47 verse 11, this passage from the time of Joseph, the patriarch, centuries again before the Exodus, this references a geographical location called Ramses. So does this mention here then mean that the centuries-old patriarchal periods, that they too must be squeezed into the late 13th century BC onwards Ramesside period? Of course not. What we can easily see here then is the use of anachronistic terminology, the work of a later editor using a later term long after the fact, something more recognizable to the population, perhaps an editor like Samuel, who himself was on the scene during the end of the Ramesside period and who is largely uh, traditionally held to have authored the Book of Judges. Perhaps he was responsible for this, adjusting the terminology to fit with a later audience who would better understand the terminology. A similar case in point is the description in Genesis 14 of the patriarch Abraham chasing his enemies all the way up to Dan. This is a well-known later territorial name that didn't exist for centuries until it was applied by the descendants of the patriarch Dan, Abraham's great-grandson, again during the Judges period. So we've only just briefly touched on some of the evidence here on what is a huge topic and quite heady with details, but one that can really be rewarding in helping to illustrate the biblical account and chronology of history and show how the biblical account really holds its own against the historical picture uncovered by archaeology. So do check out our website, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, for more information. And if there are any other biblical archaeology related subjects you're interested in, key them into the search menu. There is a good chance we may have something on the subject you are looking for already. It's time for today's last word. Today is the Day of Atonement. The Jewish people consider this day, Yom Kippur, the holiest and most solemn day of the year. On this day, even many secular Jews who otherwise never set foot in a synagogue will attend, not unlike those in the Christian world who only attend church services at Christmas and Easter. Most professing Christians don't even know this festival of God exists. Most who have heard of the Day of Atonement think it is no longer relevant, or perhaps it's relevant only for Jews. But atonement represents the fifth of seven steps in God's master plan to bring all mankind into his family. And the Bible makes clear that it is profoundly meaningful and relevant to all people. Passover, the first of God's annual convocations, pictures the death of Christ in payment for the penalty of human sin repented of. The Days of Unleavened Bread pictures the church coming out of sin, even as Israel came out of Egypt. Pentecost, the third holy day, pictures the church as the first to be begotten and born as children of God during the church age. The Feast of Trumpets, which was observed last week, pictures the second coming of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the Day of Atonement. Right at the time of Christ's return, Satan, the adversary, will still be God of this world, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. This is an office Satan has occupied for the last 6,000 years and from which he has deceived the whole world, as it says in Revelation 12 and verse 9. The devil has deceived mankind into following his way of rebellion against God's law and into continual sin and destruction. 
His influence has been a major factor in mankind's rebellion and suffering. But when Christ returns, he will depose Satan and take his place as king of kings, the rightful and righteous ruler. One of Jesus Christ's first acts will be to order Satan to be bound and taken to a place of restraint for a thousand years. This extraordinary future is pictured by the Day of Atonement ceremonies commanded in Leviticus 16. The high priest was commanded to select two goats and cast lots over them, with one representing Christ and the other representing the Azazel. The high priest, who also performed the symbolic role of Jesus Christ, then laid his hands on the Azazel goat and confessed over it all the sins of the people. Then a man led the goat into the wilderness and released it. So what does the Azazel goat symbolize? Herbert W. Armstrong showed in his booklet, Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Days Witch, that Azazel symbolizes Satan the devil. Satan will be punished for influencing mankind into disobeying God. He will bear his own guilt for the sins of mankind. The devil considers himself to be a scapegoat, that he has no fault in human sin. But that is a rank lie. Satan is the author of sin, and he will bear his punishment. The Apostle Paul explains the enduring spiritual significance of these ceremonies for New Testament Christians in Hebrews 9. And Revelation 20, the first few verses there, show how the symbolism of the goat for Azazel will be fulfilled in the near future with Christ banishing the devil. Satan will not be able to influence mankind during this wonderful time period. The change in men's minds will be remarkable. As a whole, humanity will accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and live according to God's law. There will be universal peace, joy, and happiness. The Day of Atonement pictures man being free and independent from Satan and made at one with God. This is why God commands us to refrain from all work and to fast on this holy day. You can read that in Leviticus 23, verses 27 through 32. Afflicting ourselves with proper fasting helps to free us from fleshly concerns and lusts, and it brings us close to God. Isaiah 58 and verse 6 states, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? There's a sense of liberation associated with atonement. This day pictures the time when humanity will be freed from the evil, sinful burdens that weigh on us, thanks largely to Satan. Abstaining from food pictures abstaining from fleshly lusts, resisting sin and resisting Satan, which is what the world will be doing once this day is fulfilled. Throughout the thousand years of peace under Christ's rule, atonement will be observed as a memorial of mankind's being freed from Satan. But today we fast to learn how to be free from the devil that we still must deal with. Once the world is independent from Satan, it will then become reliant on God. Atonement is a type of independence day for the world, but only independence from Satan. Then man will be at one with God and will be dependent on him. Reconciled with God, humanity will be on the path leading to membership in the God family. Man will develop God's character, his nature, and eventually have everlasting life in his family, and all because they learned to rely on him. What a radiant vision is contained in the Day of Atonement. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. 
Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques, Abraham Blondeau, and Christopher Eames. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Every day we should hear at least one little song, read one good poem, see one exquisite picture, and if possible, speak a few sensible words. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.